Thank you. It's good to have you. Thank you for having me. How was uh, how's your trip down from Canada? Uh, stressful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With yeah. all the COVID restrictions and all that, you know, the Canadian government is being, um, I'm not sure the best word to describe them, but <laughs> they're making it extremely difficult to do just about anything. Um, so traveling is a little bit, a little bit difficult, but we're here. So it's good. all good. I'm glad you guys got down here. So why don't you go ahead and take a second to introduce yourself so everybody knows who the great and talented Brady is. Sure. So my name is Brady Sharon. I used to be a professional motocross racer, um, and I invented the Atlas neck brace. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Awesome, which we're going to dive into. It's one of the main reasons I wanted to get you on here. Well, I mean, that you're a fantastic dude and Kelsey's husband, but I also mm -hmm. wanted to talk to you about... Uh, your neck brace because we're both we both have a design background and I, yeah. and I know you weren't professionally educated in it were you no no so we after I was done racing motocross my my last year was like 2009 yeah um and that was right after 08 when kind of the the big crash we had a bit yeah. of recession the whole thing oh yes I remember those and, days and uh, our industry got hit fairly hard yeah um a lot of the money kind of dried up for the level that I was at mm -hmm. I was never like I raced supercross like in the stadiums and all that yeah. kind of stuff but I was like you know trying to qualify for main events and like they only take 20 guys it's like mm -hmm. the best 20 in the world so just getting that accomplishment is difficult on its own but i wasn't like a main guy making millions of dollars um yeah so, go ahead and back up and just and just chop that up for us a little bit on how you maybe like where you grew up and then like how you got into racing motorcycles in the first place yeah sure so my dad raced when he was younger and he lived in southern california in his teen years and that was kind of in the 70s in california that was really almost the birth of the sport it had existed in europe before in a bit different form you know back when motorcycles were kind of invented it was it was like kind of sketchy but in california that was when it was kind of all rising up you know all the kids had mini bikes and they'd ride out of their garage into the hills and you know that was kind of just the lifestyle you lived in the 70s it was really cool so he was around for kind of the birth of the sport of motocross being closer to what it is today and all his friends rode and originally they got these motorcycles and they'd strip all the headlights and all the street stuff off of them and that's what they would ride out yeah. in the hills yeah. <laughs> so he did that for many years um he actually moved back to canada um after that obviously when he had me and i grew up we when i was how old was i five and six i raised bmx so i raised bicycles started with that just because you're young and it's a good transition you learn some good skills with that and then when so i was bmxing you did some bmxing yeah just for a couple of years when yeah. i was really little <clears throat> and uh then when I was seven, I got my first motorcycle and pretty much rode from when I was seven till 2009. I was 21. So oh, awesome. And what size of bike did you first start out on? A little 50cc, like okay. a little Yamaha PW50, like yeah. those little, yeah, they're a little shaft drive, yeah. but they're pretty funny, but started on those. That's what most people started on around that time. Cause that was kind of the, the only thing available. Mm -hmm. They have better stuff now, but, um, <clears throat> so yeah, started on that, started racing almost right away. Um, and then just grew up in the sport. I traveled around and went all around the world and raced in all kinds of places. And yeah, I mean, it was, <clears throat> it was interesting because it was such a, a crazy life as a kid like that, you know, you're going to school and most kids you're seeing there, it's like, well, they play soccer or they go to these little baseball camps or they, 
do some stuff. And it's like, what do you do? Like, there's motorcycles. And that's like weird enough. But then you're young and you're like traveling all over there. It's like, oh, I'm going to miss this week of school because I got to go to Vegas for this race. And I'm going to miss this week. <laughs> so it's like, right. it's such a fantasy life. It's so, it's so strange um, to look back on now. Um, and even at the time, I mean, some coming back to school and you're on crutches, you get injured or yeah, <laughs> right. like you're, you're out there experiencing life and experiencing all these different things. And you know, it's, it, it's a good way to grow up. It has its ups and downs, of course, but it's really interesting to have that perspective of the world and of traveling early on from that age. It's a fun, fun time. Yeah. I, I'm fascinated by people that are pro professional athletes. So, so basically walk me through that moment when you went pro, like when you, Cause, and, and kind of give me a little bit of background on like some of the circuits that you raced through and then like how you got approached by whoever, you know, was your main sponsor. And then that moment when you went pro and then maybe like the first time you won as a pro or like, you know, got on the podium or whatever, how did mm -hmm. walk me through all that? It's, it's weird in our sports. It's not like this big kind of build up and moment. Like, you know, that it's coming for a long time and you're working towards it and it's a very individual sport and you can kind of do it whenever you want. There's there's a problem because it's not like, you know, when you think of an, uh, an athlete that will go to the Olympics or something, it's like they worked their whole life, oh good, I was accepted for the team and that's my that's my thing, that's my trajectory. Where with this, I guess it's sort of the same for those sports, but you can be a local professional, like wherever you live, right. you know, almost anyone can move up their ranks really fast and claim I'm a professional, but... Well, yeah. you have to be winning, yeah. right? You have to be no, winning. No, not necessarily. Oh, wow. I mean, it okay. depends on, on the air. They're all a little bit different, and the U.S. works different than Canada. But, mm -hmm. like, where I grew up in Canada, it's, you know, it's a pretty small local thing, right? It's pretty easy to move through the ranks, and there's a lot of people that call themselves pros that if they went anywhere else, if they went to the U.S., if they went abroad, they're going to get smoked. It's like you're not even clear in the same planet, right? you know, as far as your skill level goes. So using the word pro you can use it it's a very loose term right. the the better way to, to define it is basically you know if you get to the level where you know i did or people much better than me if you're racing supercross like those professional things in the baseball stadium super um football stadiums across america if you can get to those and you can make main events you you're like one of the elite you're like the top tier of the sport basically that's really difficult to do um and there's only so many people that do that in the world. And if you get there, it's like, okay, you're now you're a real pro, quote unquote, you know, that you can right. proven yourself in a sense, you've got out of your local community and you can go abroad and, you know, actually compete, not just not be in the competition right. basically. So it's a long build up. but I started racing um, the national series in Canada. So it's a series that goes all across Canada. It hits almost every province. Um, it's during the summer. It is an outdoor motocross championship. So, the difference between motocross and supercross, if you're not familiar or your listeners, um, motocross is like traditionally outdoor, um, very natural terrain, like not disturbed too much. And then supercross in the stadium is completely man-made. You're starting with a flat, you know, field and you're making jumps and it's all man-made where the outdoor stuff, you could just be in rolling hills and it gets rough and choppy and, you know, it's kind of a more of a natural thing. Um so there's kind of the two different aspects of the sport there. But yeah, so I started racing the outdoor stuff in Canada um, and then eventually started going, well, I'm bouncing all over the place here. When I was an amateur, mm -hmm. to back up a little bit, I would go to the U.S. all the time. And there's bigger races down there, down, down I should say down here, that you can do um, that kind of groom you to toward that level. So I would do those all the time. And that's 
really the best way to get better is go race with people that are better than you. So you got to go do that. So I did that and uh, just kept on moving up and going through the ranks. And um, yeah, like I said, you, anyone can kind of sign up for the stuff if you meet the qualifications and do the stuff. It's not a big aha moment when you turn pro or anything like that. It's not, you know, anything like that. The prestige of going and racing those stadium events and stuff, that's a really cool moment because now it's not just outdoors lined with people and whatever. It's you're indoors, you got a full stadium of sometimes in Canada we have some stadiums that are sixty, seventy thousand people that are screaming, going crazy and they get chainsaw motors and they're oh, wow. <laughs> doing the whole thing. Um that's really cool and that's really a cool experience to to do that. I mean, you know, people like they go to a concert in a big stadium and it's like, ooh, it's kinda cool, but it's like you're doing all the backstage stuff. You're there as one of the performers, mm-hmm. you know, sort of right. that's gonna race. You get to be in the tunnel and you're you're doing all the stuff that like the concert, the artist would be doing. Right. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really unique, fun experience to do that. Nice. So tell me about the first time, go more into detail on that. Like the very first time you rode out into a stadium and like, what was your, how did that, like, how'd that feel emotionally when you're like sitting there in the pack with all the other riders and it's, you're in a stadium now versus like outside. Yeah, it was really cool. I mean, when you're racing, a lot of that stuff drowns out. You don't really notice the crowd and you know, you're kind of, it takes a lot of focus just to do what you're doing and do the jumps and make sure you're not, not going to hurt yourself and not, you know, doing your, what you need to do. So it drowns out that stuff when you're there, but walking in, standing there before you're riding, it's, yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, the good news for me is in Canada, because we have, um, we have our winters and it snows and all that. We race what's called arena cross. So we'll race indoors all winter. And I had been doing that since I was on that little 50 CC as a kid, I do it every winter, all the time. So I was already used to racing indoors in really tight stadiums. With it requires a lot of technique and technical skill because you're starting, stopping, doing all these jumps. And um, a lot of other people that don't grow up racing indoors, they don't really have that skill because the way you race outdoors is more like really high speed, flowing speed. Right. You know, kind of it's a different thing where this is tight and technical. So it's has a bit of a divide there. So luckily with my upbringing, I was very used to it. So it was very comfortable for me. Um, and that helped tremendously because there's a lot of guys that, like I said, if they don't grow up indoors riding, they get into that and they kind of freak out. They try and ride it like they would ride outdoors and it it just doesn't work. They kind of fall apart and they're overshooting things and coming up short on things and they can't carry their speed well and it's very jerky and it, it, it's really difficult for some people. So I was lucky to have that comfortability going in there. And then it was just getting used to the crowds and the lights and fire and all the, all the yeah, other stuff the that's going on. And, the, and, the, and all of the flashes from the photography. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. And so, I was, I think, how old was I when I did my first one? Maybe 17, 16, 17, something like that. Oh, so fairly young then. Mm-hmm. Wow. At any point, like, who are you approached by that says, okay, hey, we've been watching you. You're a kick-ass rider or, or was it the other way around? Were you approaching companies or were companies approaching you? A little bit of both. Um, it depended because I was, uh, by that time I was already making money. Like in Canada, I was on different teams racing for them for multiple years. Um, I, I mean, I had sponsors from when I was an amateur. I mean, when I was, you know, 10 years old, I was sponsored by a company. I wasn't getting money at that point, but you know, you get sponsors pretty early if, if you're, um, if you're good, basically, um, you go to these big U S events and you get approached by these people and there's a lot of stuff going on. So there was one of the coolest moments I'll tell you about when I first got kind of a, a quote unquote real sponsor that was 
outside of the industry a little bit that was fun for me was um, I was 12 uh, and I got sponsored by DC Shoes. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, DC it was sponsored. cool. Yeah, that is awesome. And I had just sent them a resume uh, out of nowhere just because just I thought it'd be cool. And um, they we were eating dinner one night, my family, and I was 12, and they, they called the house. It's funny back in the day how these things right. worked. But, yeah. um, they called the house, and they're like, my dad's like, oh, the, the phone's for you. I'm like, oh, just call me. I'm 12. I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> okay, Dad. And it was the, the athlete manager for from D.C., and he told me that. I'm like, holy shit. Like, okay, what's up? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, we want to we want to sponsor you. Here's what we're going to do, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I got on the phone. I was like, that was fucking cool. That right. was awesome. Right. <laughs> like, I like that. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, they they were sliding me all kinds of stuff. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was so so cool. I mean, from from that point till uh, basically the time I stopped racing, I didn't really buy clothes or shoes at all. <laughs> like, nice. Everything was just like here you go. Um, so that that was kind of the, one of the first moments. It was really fun, even more than you know when people started paying me and stuff. Because that's that's fine, but it was that was when you're young and that stuff starts happening and you know, yeah, that was really. And so what, what point, at what point do you start getting, getting paid? Like what, when did you start getting, when did the paycheck start coming? Cause that's, to me, that's indicative of like when you actually go pro at something is when people are paying you money for your craft, regardless of what it is. If you're a photographer, a professional motocross racer, uh, you know, uh, an industrial designer, when you start getting paid money for your craft, that's when you've essentially gone pro at whatever that is. So of course, when did that start happening for you? kind of like right before I was professional as like an intermediate, like before that you can start getting paid in Canada. When you're an intermediate, they actually pay you at the races. So like even local races, if you win, you get, you get money instead of a trophy or whatever. That's just how they do it. It isn't much. It's a hundred bucks here, 200 bucks here, little stuff. But, um, that's really fun when that starts happening. Yeah. And as an amateur, you can make some money here and there depending what you do. But nowadays, I mean, it's totally different now. There's amateurs that are 12 years old getting paid six figures. It's like, it's out of control. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, because of things like social media and YouTube and all that. Now they're not just riders, they're marketers. Right. You know, so there's, there's young kids now that have a huge presence on YouTube. They got a million followers on Instagram and they're raking in all kinds of cash from all kinds of deals they're putting together with outside sponsors and whatever they're doing. So it's a totally different landscape now than it was. There's pros and cons to that, of course, because now it's like not only do you have to focus on riding, now you have to be this marketing expert <laughs> doing yeah. all these things on social and trying to figure out this, this really full-time job right? plus the racing. So it, I, I kind of sympathize with them a little bit because that's incredibly difficult. I know how hard that is <clears throat> just for my businesses that I have and th- right. you know things that we have to do. It's like, and I got to be a professional athlete? Like That takes a lot of time. Yes. So that's challenging. But back in my day, it was more just about what are your results? How well did you do? Okay, this is what you deserve. You know, it's pretty cut and dry. Yeah, I mean, that's when I was a kid too with the snowboarding thing. Like, you know, I had this wild dream of being a, you know, professional snowboarder and it just never, there's just some situations that it just, it didn't line up for me. But I remember when I was a kid, like it was all about Transworld Snowboarding Magazine and like that was like, I mean, I you know, for print was like the Instagram of its day. You mm-hmm. know, like you would go buy the magazine, flip through it. There'd be ads in there, but then there'd be art- cool articles about like different, you know, heli trips that dudes went on and like interviews with guys in there. And you could like read through this magazine and get a real, you know, that was how you connected with the athletes back in the day. And if you and your crew or someone got in there, that right. was like, 
holy oh, shit, yeah. this is like, we yeah. made it. Yep. If you got in Transworld Snowboarding Magazine, you were a god. You know, <laughs> you're basically a snowboarding god. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that. Yeah, the game has really changed with like the advent of smartphones and social media and all that stuff. And yeah, I can imagine how tiring it is when you have to be on all the time because that's kind of what, unfortunately, where we're at nowadays with, you know, technology and with phones and everything and with, you know, people using these social platforms to, you know, they were originally designed for humans to connect. And I think we talked about a little bit about this earlier and now they've transformed into this huge marketing machine. And now what's weird is like people are kind of painted into a corner to include myself, mm-hmm. you know, running my econ business. Like I'm painted into a corner kind of with like, that's my primary marketing channel. And that's like the only option, you know, realistically, like I've talked about this with several people. I'm thinking about bringing print back because <laughs> good luck. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people have told me that, like, good luck. But I've, like, watched what companies, you know, like Ford Observations Group did with their, you know, volume one and volume three, which are sitting over there on the coffee table. I'll, I'll show you those, you know, when, the, this the, afternoon. The quality of it, though, not just right. that you're holding something, but the, the quality of the, the care that goes into mm-hmm. it. You know, it's a curated thing that, you know, someone's put a lot of sweat and tears into that is fantastic. We're online. It's such a just open floodgate spew of everyone's thought every two seconds. Yeah. It's like to weed out all the bullshit that's on there. There's some great stuff on there. Don't get me wrong. Right. But most of it sucks. Most of it. Yeah. So it's hard to weed that out where when you have a nice curated magazine by people who are passionate and care. Yeah. It's like they've rid it of most of that stuff. Obviously there's ads and whatever, yeah. but you know, that's helpful too. But yeah, they make it this thing that's, it's easier to appreciate. Yeah. It's like a know. piece of, it's like a piece of art, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a little bit retro now. And I think, you know, F- Ford observations group, like led the, led the way, at least in my, in my market vertical with like bringing back print and, you know, and then they took a, a majority of the funds, if not all of them, I think, and like donated it to the green beret foundation, Oh, nice, which was really cool. But they, I mean, what they did with that, you know, with those publications and that print kind of led the way for like bringing print back. And I, I think did, that could be, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I did this little survey on my Instagram and I was like, if I came up with a printed catalog, who would, subs- would you, would you be interested and would you subscribe? And like, you know, just out of my little tiny 8,000 following, like 76% of people said, yes, I would be interested mm-hmm. in subscribing to a print publication. So I think there's room there to bring it back and, you know, a lot of the frustrations that we talked about, and I think it was either yesterday or this morning, like with regard to social media and like the algorithm and how confusing everything is nowadays and really nowadays and really what they're, what they're doing with, you know, how they're managing the platform and not to dive too deep into controversy, but like, you know, cancel culture and people being silenced (coughs) and shadow banned and all of that shit. Like it, it makes it extremely difficult when you rely on those, when you're, when you're painted into a corner with that platform, to use as your primary marketing channel. But then there's so many, you know, and I think I said this to you like earlier where I was like, this is like credit, you know, (laughs) where like, it's like credit is a complete scam and it's like credit card companies and the banks and they're all tied together to basically it's a carrot on the stick to keep you in debt and keep you using a system that makes banks money. Mm -hmm. And they don't like, there's no clear rules to the game. The things that I found out about credit the hard way, like I stopped using credit for a long time after my divorce and I was up in the mid 700 someplace and then, you know, didn't use credit for like four or five years. And then I was like, I think I was in, I was in college in San Francisco and I was like, I wonder what my credit score is these days. 
and just for fun, I got on it. And my credit had gone from like mid 700s down to like 580 because I hadn't used any revolving credit. Like, like all my shit's paid. But I haven't even done anything bad. I don't. Correct. I haven't. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not late on anything. All my shit's paid off. Like my trucks paid off. Like yeah, I have why my, would you go down? I have no credit cards. I didn't even have credit cards yeah. at that point in time. Like I just paid cash for everything. Yeah. You know, as I think most humans should. Um, and so it's the, the, there's no transparency in the rules there. Like I remember another, so I finally got a credit card and I was like, fuck, I, I guess I need to get a credit card and start using it. So my credit goes back up. So if I want to, you know, sure. finance something later on the road, yeah. I can. Yeah. And they lock you in. So if you want a house, you want a mortgage, you yep. want any of this stuff, it's like, well, you gotta have credit. So, right. yeah. So I started building my credit back up, but then I got into this one situation where I had something and I like paid you know, I paid like, it was like 50% of my balance. This is big purchase. And I, I bought like, I used like 50% of my balance and I was still paying it off every single month, but I'm like, okay, well, cool. I'm going to use this credit. And then I got distracted somehow and I didn't pay the credit card off before the report date. Mm. Cause that's the other thing you got to pay attention to. There's like the report date and then there's when the payments due. And then there's like the next statement month when it rolls yeah. over to the next month. Yeah. And if you don't get those things to line up properly and you don't pay before you don't pay that credit card off before the report date, not before your, your date, not before your payments due, because a lot of times they'll, they will fuck you by saying, Oh, well your payments due on the, you know, on the 21st or on the first or whatever. But the yeah. report date Different. is, is four or five days earlier than that. So they'll report, oh, well, you used 50% and then your credit goes down because you used 50%. And then the other argument I have with that is like, well, why are you giving me like a $10,000 limit on this card? But then if I spend more, if I spend $5,000 on this card, even though I'm paying it off every single month, and even though I have great payment history in the past, like I'm, I'm penalized. I'm, I'm penalized for it. My credit score, you know, takes a 10 or 15 point hit. And then it takes, the other thing that's funny is if you have one little tiny infraction like that, they'll drop you 10, 15, 25 points. And then over the course of the next six months, like the following month, like you, you're completely paid off. Haven't even used credit that month. You'll go up two points. And then the month yeah, after that. It's not really that, a fair three give points. and take. Yeah. And they don't tell you like what the, you know, what the, uh, rules of the game are that you're playing in. And and I feel like social media is the exact same way as the credit system where we've got this weird algorithm, the almighty algorithm that everybody's out there trying to crack the code on this and figure yeah, they're out. they're all living and dying by the algorithm. Correct. And so like, there's no transparency there. And it's funny and I probably fucked myself, but, uh, and I was telling you this earlier, like Instagram, they sent me this like little thing. They're like, okay, well, what can we do to make the platform better? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, you guys suck. <laughs> I just flat out was like, you guys suck. And here's yeah. why you suck. And I gave them like a bunch of bullet points. And I'm like, there's no transparency in like how the algorithm works. There's uh, you know, cancel culture going on. There's like, you know, there's, you know, people reporting each other that just don't like each other. Like if, you yeah, know, for not for nonsense for, or for completely yeah. yet, like you're saying that I'm violating community guidelines that you have no transparency on. I don't mm-hmm. get any type of warning. You have no customer service. Like I can't like the customer service sucks. Like unless you're doing tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars of ad revenue with them. Yeah. Good luck talking to somebody. Good luck talking to somebody. Like they will give you, if you're spending that kind of money, they give you a rep that you can contact. But other than that, like you, if you're just me with 8,000 followers and they decide one day that they don't like you and they shut your page down for whatever fucking reason they feel like, yeah, you just essentially like crippled my business. I have no way to contact you and I have no way to like fix the problem. Yeah. They're, they're the gatekeepers to so many right. businesses now. And right. you know, the problem with the individuals on there, it, it's turned into this big grandstanding tower that people shout from, right. you know, it's given everyone a voice and you know, every, everyone should have a, a right to say whatever they want. But right. unfortunately the, the way it's done in this platform, I don't think is really healthy for people. You know, they're all shouting their own thing. They all have opinions and just creates all this fighting 
constantly. And because, noise. Yeah, so you're just creating all this all this noise and all this fighting that doesn't... I don't feel like it's helping get anywhere positive. It's not like the people are having meaningful discussions and working problems out. Right. How many posts do you see where the, it's a controversial post and all the comments are 50% of the people going, you're an idiot, and the other 50% are going, oh, no, you're an idiot, right. and all the reasons and all the yelling and all, all the shit in between. But never at the end of those do you see them go, you know what, I didn't... I never saw it from your point. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right, or I, I was maybe wrong about this, or I was, you know, there's no constructive conversation happening. It's right. just, I'm yelling at you, you're yelling at me, and they just disagree forever. Right. It's like, at least if you could have a meaningful conversation or there was a way to work things through, but people just, because they're at a keyboard and they're not seeing emotion from people or how what they say makes them feel, right. it's taken the human element out of it. It's just two keyboards yelling at each other. There's no emotion. It's just right. fuck you, fuck you, and then there's no there's no recourse. There's no and there's way no, to resolve that. Correct. And there's no consequence to your actions. And mm-hmm. my favorite is when you get, and I'll always look when I, and it never fails. The assholes that get on my page, and like and and do stuff like that, I will look, and nine times out of ten, they have no transparency. Like they're a private profile. They have zero posts, yeah. and they have like one follower. So they're like on a ghost account. Essentially, yeah. sometimes there's no profile picture. Just talking shit for, just the, for sport. trolling and talking shit for mm-hmm. sport. And I immediately will call those people out and like block them immediately. Mm-hmm. And I've had some people like come back and DM me and be like, well, oh, I can't have a profile, man, because I'm an undercover police officer working dope. And I'm like, okay, cool. That's neat. Don't act like a fucking asshole on my page. Yeah, it's not, you still don't have to do what you did. Right, I mean, correct. The fact that you're hiding behind that for whatever reason, right. whether it's just because you want to talk shit with no one knowing right. or because you have a legit reason, right. still. And then... With everyone spouting off their their opinions at all hours of the day, it creates these echo chambers. Now you can go follow thousands, millions of people, whoever you want, that all have the same view as you. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It could be one or the other, depending right. on what it is, obviously. But you're going to find people that agree with you, and then you're going to perpetuate whatever ideology or whatever thing it is that you're that you guys are discussing. It could be innocuous; it doesn't right. matter. But and then you you live in, in that, and it perpetuates that. Mm-hmm. But the best recourse for anybody in their life, get varying opinions. Right. The point when you go out in the world and you interface with people, you're not just dealing with people that have the same views and the same morals and the same compass that you do. You're dealing with a whole mix of all kinds of different people on different paths. And when you interface with that, it helps you learn, oh, maybe, maybe I'm not right. Maybe there's another way. Maybe you just get to experience people. Right. And for better or worse, there's you know some of both, but at least you go, oh, hey, I... I saw it. I didn't like how that person acted. Made this person feel bad. So I, I don't like that behavior. That doesn't seem like a good way to interface with the world. But now with social, you don't you don't learn those lessons. You're right. just in these echo chambers, reinforcing your thing, which makes your belief stronger and your hate for other people greater. If right. they don't agree with you, it's like this is driving. It's a wedge driving people apart Correct. in so right. many ways. Not just politically. Obviously, right. that's a whole thing. But in every little niche of whatever it is. Um, even even with what I do about neck braces, that happens right. with that. There's a wedge driven between of people that believe and people that think it's snake oil. Right. We've shown scientific evidence. There's been 10-year ambulance studies that have measured real-world results over 10 years, over 10,000 injuries mm-hmm. of people that all supports our lab data. Like, There's so much evidence for them. And then they bring up one anecdote of someone that got hurt. Right. It's like, okay, yeah. Bad things happen on motorcycles. These things aren't perfect. We're not invincible. We're, no. you know, fleshy bag of meat that's easy to injure. Right? Very, you know, this, yes. It's hard to get away from that. And when you have bikes that are faster and easier to ride than ever, that are putting people in more dangerous situations, 
yeah, I, we're trying our best. Right. You know, yeah. this is a step in the right direction. Yeah. And helmet, helmet manufacturers are working on it. We're working on it, other people. But at the end of the day, if you're going really fast on the motorcycle and you crash, it's probably going to suck. Yeah, d- 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 you're just, get fucked up. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I can tell you from personal experience. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that goes for anything. For snowboarding, skiing, yeah. I don't care what it is. Yeah. We're doing dangerous things and it's difficult. Yeah. We'll do our best, but yeah, it is yeah. what it is. But I was going to go back to the magazine thing. You know, I think something that could maybe work is like a almost like a limited series type thing of how you do like a limited series podcast. Hey, I'm going to do eight episodes or I'm going to do whatever whatever it is. Right. You kind of curate this experience down to its core. And it's not like, hey, every month we're going to try and regurgitate stuff. Because the reason magazines are failing is because they're too slow. Mm-hmm. The news, you have social, you have all these other things. You can have news instantly. Right. You can learn that you know, a tragic event happened and 30 seconds later, it's online. The whole world knows about it. You just can't replicate that with a magazine. You got to design the art. You got to get it proofed. You got to go to the printer. You got to make printing plates. You got to do the magazine. You got to get them shipped. It's like, dude, you are like, you're in a cave chiseling rock. Like, <laughs> you, right. You're just not going to keep up. So I think the, the way that it could work is get out of that mousetrap and go, we're not trying to keep up. This isn't news-based. Right. This is curated information that's you know somewhat timeless i guess it'd have to be relevant to the time but that's fine but it's not dependent on news cycles and you know something that's happening it's just information and it's just it, some other experience something like that might might be able to work because then it's not you're not asking people for something every month you're not asking people for whatever so hey here's this limited series and that's what it is yeah i'm also thinking about making it like a subscription-based thing and then making it like where it's like art where art meets editorial meets product, you know, where mm-hmm. you can like basically, it's not completely 100% focused on your brand. Like you go to, you know, your affiliate companies that you're sure. friendly or work with in the, you know, whatever market vertical you're in and you write, you know, creative stories and cool stories, highlighting their stuff, highlighting their product, talking about their stuff, talking about your stuff. And, and you make it, you know, like I said, a little bit of editorial and then a little bit art for focus on the art form of whatever it is that you're doing. And then, also then then sprinkle in your product where you're like, oh, and then by the way, here's these, here's these products that are available from these companies. Here's how you order them, you know, you know, website, SKU, colors, all of that stuff, you know, kind of like mixing in some lookbook type, mm-hmm. you know, content inside yep. that. And I think that could be a potential, you know, safety net. A lot of people are branching out to, they're also doing um, the texting you know, apps where you can like text. I think that's great. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what better way. Cause I hate fucking emails. I'm, I'm not the guy that I'm marketing to. Like, there's a lot of people that love getting those like email news blasts that have like the new product in it, the product release or the sale announcement or whatever. And they get in there and they, they love, they love that stuff. I'm not that person. So it's really hard for me sometimes to come up with a marketing plan or like write a email news blast to my subscribers when I fucking hate email. I hate email. So like, I'm the guy that's like, the, text me. Yeah, I think though it's it's interesting and you'd have to, it's hard to tell what consumers are thinking, but if you're, I think it depends what kind of job you're in as well. Because right. if you're, if you have a business like you and I, it's like five or six email addresses. I'm getting emailed, bombarded by the email all the time. Right. So it's like, I'm with you. I was like, I, I don't want another email from anybody. Mm-hmm. I want less email. Me too. You know, because yep. it's just this yep. never ending stack that you got to manage and, and all that. But a consumer, if they don't work, if they just work a, you know, a construction job or whatever. It's like, they may not be dealing with hardly any email. Right. So for them, it's like they get an email once in a while. They might still like that. Yeah. It's, it's really difficult. And then the texting thing, I mean, they might like that too, or they might find, Hey, this is like feels invasive. Cause like, how'd you get my number? How'd you blah, 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 whatever. 
Um, well, you have to opt in for no, that. For, no, yeah. for sure. Yeah. But it just, that feels much more per, like invasive sort mm-hmm. of than, a, than an email that just gets sent out. Right. And nowadays with people and the privacy issues that are going on right now with, you know, all the big lawsuits with Apple and all, right. all these people that are going through this privacy stuff. It, yeah, it's, it's interesting. But I agree with you on the email front, for sure. It's like, yeah. it's funny that there hasn't, there hasn't really been a better system it, like for no. managing business and email right. communication. You the move to things like Basecamp or Slack or those types of things where it's like a, a all-encompassing kind of a thing. But that's, you still kind of need email because you need people outside of your company. So that doesn't help with that. And like, it's just, yeah, it's it's challenging, but I wish they'd come up with something better. Yeah, I don't, I haven't seen, there's been some other apps that I haven't really, there's like this Telegram app and I haven't like got a chance to play mm-hmm. with that very much. Have you, do mm-hmm. you have any experience with it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's another like, you know, burst messaging capability thing. I'm I'm going to look into it and look at some other some other options to help shore up our plans because I, you know, with us working in pro law enforcement, I'm not a defund the police guy because I know where that road goes. Yeah. Uh, If anything, I'm like, 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 no, let's like, more funding. <laughs> let's pay cops more. Like maybe let's yeah. pay them six high six figures or have a like trajectory where they can start out at a certain point like the military and be making sure. X amount of money. And as they move up in rank or in responsibility, they get paid more money and make it like make it a prestigious job, you know, and stop hiring bottom of the barrel fucking people because that's all they can afford to pay. And so you have these like and then having these like selection standards that are low so that like they can get people to fill those jobs yeah. and then they're not paid well. But and then, then they send them out and they're dealing with either a murder or a robbery. Or they got, cool. or they got to use their firearm or there's in these situations right. like they're really not that prepared for. No. And then dealing, it's one thing to deal with the physicality right. of that. Obviously that's its own thing. And then, then the mental aspect after. Yes. Then all these things compound. It's like, mm-hmm. oh geez, like, you know, they, they need a better, right. better training, better management of their mental health during and after, mm-hmm. you know, it's a whole it's a whole thing. It just needs to be modernized a little bit for this age. And then the other side of that coin is like, hey, citizens, maybe just be better people so that they, like it's right. a twofold problem. It's not just, hey, look, there's bad cops, there's bad citizens, there's great cops, there's great citizens. There's, you know, it's a full spectrum. And everything in between. Yeah. And, and of course, and it's going to be hard to ever change that. But on the whole, it's like, if, yeah, it's, it's a difficult balance. It's so difficult. And there's so many people. Mm-hmm. You know, even just America, 320 million plus, whatever, whatever yeah. it's at now. It's like, yeah. it's just, that's a lot of people. Yeah. You, so know, being, you, you know, it's like if you're in a room of a hundred people, how many are going to be an asshole? Correct. At least a few. Yeah. Multiply that probably by. Probably more than a few. Probably. Multiply that by, you know, you know, get to 320 million. There's yeah. a lot of people that are out there that yeah. just don't want to follow the rules or yeah. don't want to do whatever. And yeah, yeah that's. Not great humans. That's super challenging. Yeah. So being a company that supports law enforcement. I mean, basically my company, unfortunately is like, or not unfortunately, but like, I would say the timing is unfortunate, like where we're at politically with like the politics that are going on with like the right versus the left, which has been a thing forever, but like the, where the left is progressing to in terms of what they, all the things are doing with regard to society and like what, what's happening with that. Like my company supports law enforcement. My company supports the military. My company supports responsible armed citizens. You know, that's what my brand and my company is completely about making products for those end users. And so uh, it's just super frustrating to have to worry about the fact that like my primary way to make a living could one day just be shut off because there's some 23 year old person at Instagram monitoring accounts that says, Oh fuck these guys. I don't like them. I mean, it's even worse than that. I mean, they're literally have algorithms set up to just hit tag words and they'll clip your ads just from that. It's mm-hmm. like, they don't even involve a person most of right. the time. I mean, for my wife's company, Brass and Unity with the mm-hmm. jewelry, yep. she was doing ads and Facebook won't let you say the word veteran in an ad. You'll never get it approved. 
Oh, wow. See, that's where and we're it's at. It's like, we're, that's not what's even... A, what's offensive what's, about the word What's veteran? offensive or controversial? I just, we're not taking a stance. We're just saying, hey, these products, we donate to veterans. Please point me to what the issue is in that sentence. Right. You know, they're, they're so anti-military gun, whatever. And then on the other end, oh, yeah, support the truth. It's like, okay, but... Not right. really. You got to match your <laughs> your actions with that. Right. You know, they're so th- in that case, it's just algorithms. They're just going. Yeah, we don't like the word veteran for whatever reason. I don't know. We even know what the reason is. Good luck right. finding out. And they just flag it, and it's just no. Okay, that's not. Can't do that. Yeah. So I have a Facebook account. Like, unfortunately, you have to have a personal account. I don't know if this has changed at all. I'm sure I'll get DM'd about this, but I had a. You have to have, as far as I know, a personal account to have a business account, which I think is complete horseshit. Like, I, yeah, only on Facebook. Yeah, Twitter, would, Instagram, and anyways, like, yeah, no problem. It's yeah. like, dude, you own Instagram. Why? Why would you? Right. Okay. I would. I would love to just delete my my private Facebook page because I it's a platform that I. The only reason I keep it is so that a I can have a business. Yeah. Facebook. <laughs> I'm page. in the same boat. And b I have friends that live overseas that use Messenger to is like their primary way to communicate overseas. So that's the other thing when you're talking about those other apps, Telegram, this that. It's yeah. like. Dude, I don't want another messaging app either. I Neither mean, do I. You got your your basic, you know, like iMessage if you have an iPhone right. or text, whatever, if you have Android. And then yep. WhatsApp, Signal, this, that. It's like, mm-hmm. dude, I don't want another way to message somebody. <laughs> like, no. There's so many ways. It's like I got six apps just to send words to people. Right. What are we doing? Yes, correct. <laughs> you know, I, I and I get it. all these companies spin up and they're, you know, worth billions of dollars and they're doing all this stuff. And it's just like, it's incredible that they can achieve that where it's like you're just doing basically the same thing as so many other people. And like I said, you're almost segregating people more than you're bringing them together right. because now you have all this fragmentation of all these platforms. Some people are on this, some people are on that, some people are on this, and everyone gets their little piece. And it just, as a consumer, it feels like a bit of a nightmare because you can have a choice. You can be like, oh, I really like Signal because their message and it's private right. and blah, blah, blah. But guess what? Like three of your hundred people that you talk to are on there. Right. Okay, well, now I need... <laughs> it's not a solution. Right. I want it to be a solution, but it's not. Yeah. So yeah, that's it's really challenging, and that's it ties into the business stuff. You know, when you're email marketing, text marketing, whatever it is. Right. Now you have, and this ties into the magazine. Back in the day, like my dad would say when he was kind of coaching me on business stuff early on, and he's like, you know, we back in the day we would put an ad in in you know the popular magazine for the mm-hmm. sport, and on Monday the phone would ring. I'm like. That's awesome. That is like so far from what exists now. Like <laughs> right. it's not even, you know, not even the thing, right? You could, you could, you got to do a hundred things just to hope that you get noticed right. in any of them. You got to be on social. You got to be doing emails. You got to be doing texts. You got to be in the, some of the magazines or online stuff. Mm-hmm. You got to be doing podcasts. You got to be doing all these, you got to be at the events. You got to do all this stuff. It's like, dude, this is like, this used to be a job for one person. Now mm-hmm. it's a job for, you have entire teams. Yeah, that are just marketing teams, and you have mm-hmm. teams within teams. You have social teams. You have yep. email teams. You, have, you know, it's it's an infinite. You can scale it almost infinitely. Yes. You can have a hundred, hundred thousand people working on that. You know, at some of these big companies. So yeah. it, it's so it's so challenging. I feel like it's made business significantly more difficult. Yeah, just from a resource perspective, like I said, the bodies that you have to have and the skills that you have to have to do all of these things that makes business harder, not easier. Right. I guess they would argue. Sure, you can place ads on here and, you know, hope they work. But that's for anyone who's done it, they know how difficult it is. Mm-hmm. It's not just like you just place a few ads and, you know, spend a few thousand bucks and all this money comes rolling in. I mean, you're, you're competing with billions of dollars and all these platforms. And, right. you know, it's a very complicated landscape. So, yeah, I don't like that. It, I feel like it's made business in some ways more challenging. I guess you could argue, well, you have access to all these people and you never, had, you never had that before. But it's like... 
but you have to capture those eyeballs. Right. You have to get the following. You have to get the stuff. You have to get the traction. And that's difficult when you're dealing with, I mean, you're trying to put things of substance on there and it just gets weeded out by cat videos and, mm -hmm. and bullshit. So you're <laughs> like, right. how do I compete with that? I mean, my thing that I'm trying to do that, you know, is involves medical research and all, all this crazy stuff that that's all proven. It's like, you can talk about that, but you're like, yeah, boring cat video. You know, you're competing with eyeballs and it's hard to get those eyeballs onto what you care about and what you want to push for people when they're just so distracted. I think it's, yes, they're very distracted. And I mean, there's a crazy magic to it. I like try and do research on reels. Like everybody's been telling me, you know, cause for the longest time it was stories. So I was like doing stories all the time, two or three stories a day. And so it got to the point where, you know, then this new reels thing popped up because of TikTok and Instagram wants to compete with them. So they're, they have their own little thing called reels. And so everybody was like, you need to start doing reels. Well, I looked at reels and I'm like, this is stupid, mindless <laughs> bullshit. Like, but that's what people want. I'm like, why the fuck do I want to watch people sing and dance? Like I've got better fucking things to do. Mm -hmm. um, w w I don't care about that. And so then I started looking at it. And recently what I've, what I've started doing is cause I was trying to come up with a strategy on like how to, how can I use reels in a positive way for my business? And so, you know, to promote my business and to, you know, capture eyeballs and like get, because people are like, well, the algorithm's not really tracking, tracking or monitoring anything in reels right now. And like, they're not going to block anything and because they want it to proliferate, you know, because they want to compete heavily with TikTok. So I'm like, all right. So I started looking at the landscape and they're like, I would go down the rabbit hole of oh, like yeah. reels. And I'm like, there's like videos of like sharks eating. Like if you go down, if you get in my reels, like it, it like what is big rec, the content that's recommended to me, it's all overlanding shit and <laughs> girls dancing because I just think that that's like what you're all, everybody's going to see in their feed. And then uh, animals, wild animals attacking each other. <laughs> I don't know why that's a thing in my life, but it's like snakes eating, you know, like a boa in the jungle, like, <laughs> like a Python, like eating a, you know, eating some type of small animal, a chinchilla or something. And then I've got like white, great white sharks, like biting chunks of meat off of hooks and, you know, out yeah. of, off the coast of South Africa. And I'm like, how is this getting, how is this being content being recommended to me? Cause like i you know, aside from the like overlanding stuff, which I a nerd on and yeah. I like, yeah, usually it's based on what you're viewing. Yeah. What you're interacting so so with I'm like, stuff. what, what is this? Yeah. Who doesn't love to see girls twerking? It's fucking great. <laughs> I don't know how they get but their it, body. It's so hard. Up. It's so hard to compete with that with a product of substance or whatever. It's right. like, how are you going to get eyeballs away from that to yeah. look at, you know, your piece of metal, your piece of plastic or whatever, yeah. whatever you're doing. It's right. like, that's so hard. You got to do right. things that are distracting like that, that like take away from the, the seriousness of what you're trying to sell. Right. And then the, uh, you know, the attention span of people just keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Like it used to be like IGTV mm -hmm. and you could put a video on IGTV. Then it was, oh no, like depending on your following 15 to an hour long IGTV video. Then it's, then it was, then it's the stories and stories like you and can, they're here, then they're gone. Then yeah. you need more and yeah. you need to keep it going. It's like, right. yeah, you're just on a hamster wheel. Right. And now it's reels and reels are like 15 to 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. I'm like, really people? That's, that's where our attention. So I'm like, fine, cool. How do I? how do I play the game here and capitalize? And so then what Alex, my, you know, my, my photographer and, you know, current intern is doing, he came up with this great idea where he's like, Hey, let's do something with like a quick video that like does some brand highlight and then like shows you doing something, either talking shit and being funny or like mm -hmm. doing something with the product. And then like, let's fade out to a, you know, our hashtag. Yeah. And I, I thought mean, you have brilliant. to become this, this personal variety show right. of idiocracy. Almost <laughs> like you'd, you'd have to do all these things and right. like, seemingly 
uninteresting or whatever, but they catch people's attention. It's it's le- it le- for me it lacks a lot of substance. Yeah, I appreciate the craftsmanship and what people put into their products and their stories and all that stuff, and that's just hard to get across in a fifteen second twerking video. Correct. <laughs> I don't know how you you know. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't know how I'm going to do it either. Maybe I'll start like making booty shirts for chicks and just like have a female <laughs> ambassador, like dance crew that just does nothing but like dance reels. And they'll like be yeah. twerking with like ODG USA booty shorts on or some <laughs> shit. I don't and know. It, it makes me feel old. I mean, I'm only 33, but these, these young kids that are putting stuff out there, it's, it just makes me feel old. I look at some of the stuff. I'm like, why is that popular? How did that go viral? Like, I feel like an, an old person. I'm just like, what? I don't know. It's hard for my brain to understand why, you know, you remember that guy that was skateboarding, drinking cranberry juice. Yes. Do you remember that? Yeah. Why? Look, that guy's great. He's enjoying his life. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Great. That's that's awesome. Right. I'm happy, super happy for him. But there's been 4 billion videos just as irrelevant as that that have happened, and they don't go viral, but that one does. And it's like, right. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how to sit. Not that it's like, it's hard to go viral. Not right. everyone does. I'm not trying to say that. Or like, why not me? Mm-hmm. But... I don't understand the mentality. <clears throat> and I guess for him, he wasn't even trying to. He was just posting shit. Yeah. He was just living his best life. But it life. just caught on. Yeah. So it's, it's not even like I'm trying to engineer a way to go viral. It's just that I don't even understand the mentality or like why people catch on to certain things that they do that do go viral. Mm-hmm. You know, remember that uh, uh, damn Daniel guy with the shoes, the mm-hmm. Vans? Same with him. He's on Ellen doing on the show. He's getting vans for life from vans. I was like, what? What kind of world? What is this? Right. You know that happened when I was in school four thousand times a day. Nobody cared. Yeah. He didn't leave the school because it was like, oh yeah, that's funny in the moment. It's like, but why, why would we ever like take that anywhere else? You know what I right. mean? But now everyone documents everything and just shit catches on for seemingly no reason. Yeah. They go, that's crazy. funny. And then now you're just now you're that guy. Now you're the cranberry juice guy. Now you're the damn Daniel guy. Now you're the, you know, whatever guy it is of of the week or the day or the hour. Right. Um, yeah, that's, that's a, it's a weird, seems like a weird existence and a weird world. And then when you unplug from that and you go travel, you go outside, you do that. It's like that other silly little digital world doesn't really even exist. Yeah. No. You yeah, go I, out and talk to people and do stuff. It's like the, there's the two worlds. There's a digital world and then there's the, the real world. And it, it, it's crazy, but you know, it's getting to the level of like, you know, like a Tron movie or something like that. Eventually when VR gets good enough to be indistinguishable from real life and things like that. I mean, people are going to go in there and not come out. Yeah. Ready player one is probably going to be a a, a reality in our lifetime. Yeah. And you know, people even like military or wars or whatever, it'll be all remote controlled drones. They already have that, but in a grander scale. Right. And it'll be like 12 year old kids because they're going to be like the best at it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like these kids that play video games and whoever, it's like, those are going to be your soldiers to be there you know doritos on their fingers and they're just oh, find yeah. the computer and they're going to be the one in control I mean, yeah it's, launching hellfire missiles at 16 yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah it's uh, it drives me crazy because there's things that will like you said go viral that i have it makes absolutely no sense to me or like just looking on the reels videos and i'll like find a, a profile and the hot thing like are these girls that are like sitting there and they're like lip syncing just a brief clip of somebody from a movie or from another recording like saying something it's like now you're not even doing the thing you're just pretending to do the thing right you're not even you're not even showcasing any of your talent you're just lip syncing something somebody else says yeah you got dolled up and you look good and you right you're lip syncing and that makes a thing and it's but and it's love watching it 300,000 views (laughs) and i'm like what in the fuck planet (laughs) am i living on right now like i don't understand this shit at all and so 
yeah, I'm like, cool. I'll just be over here, like trying to proliferate my brand in some, some clever way. Like I'm hoping like I can set some trend at least in my industry or like with Mm -hmm. business or with whatever, with like how I'm utilizing reels because I, you know, I, I, my social media is primarily all business driven. Like my, even, even my personal page is like, that's the hub where people can come in and connect to me and see all the things that I'm doing. But like, I'm not the guy. It's business based. It, yeah, still, I'm man. not in my. I'm not the guy that's sitting there like scrolling through my stories, freaking for hours a day. Like just yeah. What's what's my friend doing? What's this friend doing? What oh, what's this new pro- like? You know, I'll do that once in a great while. You know, like yeah, I'll take like if I'm if I'm like I'm it's lunchtime. I'm gonna go grab a sandwich, and I'm sitting there waiting for my sandwich to get done at my favorite little sandwich shop over mm-hmm. here in the square. Yeah, and I don't have anything else to do. Like I don't have any DMs to respond to. I don't have any emails to send. Sure. And I'm sitting there and like task free at the moment, waiting for my sandwich. Then yeah, I'll take five to ten minutes from while my sandwich is getting made, and I'll like scroll through my through my story or you know through my feed, and I'll I'll look like look at the shit that everybody's posting. The other times that I do that, I'll do that a little bit in the morning, but it's primary reconnaissance for like, what are my competitors doing? Like sure, I'll go to, yeah. a, I'll pick a competitor and go to their yeah, page. There's a purpose. Yeah. And yeah. I'll go through and see like, Hey, how are they doing their social media? What are they doing? What are they posting? What's getting good engagement on their page? And, and like, so many people now they're like, they have no attention span whatsoever. Right. Like you said, you're waiting for a coffee or a sandwich. We're at the phone and oh, they're on the phone. And mm-hmm. it's like, I like it as much as the next guy, but uh, they just can't sit still for two minutes and not be on it. Right. It's like. That's a real problem for a mm-hmm. lot of people. Yeah. You know, it's they, a, oh, I watch they it can't even the do time, that. Yeah. You know, that it's so, it's become this, this comfort blanket mm-hmm. that you can reach at any time and you can spend an infinite amount of time doing whatever you want right. on it. Yep. And it's always going to give you feedback and it's always mm-hmm. going to, you know, get that little pump of dopamine and it's, yep. <laughs> you're always going to get that, that feedback. So that's, yeah, it's difficult. And like I said, o- overall for society, I don't, unless we transfer our consciousness into that, into that realm, I don't see it being a good thing for you know, trying yeah. to live in the world that is outside of that. It's hard to mesh. Yeah. Mesh those two. Yeah. Bit. God help us when fucking Neuralink becomes a thing. And oh, like, I can't wait. I'm people... fucking one of those things day one. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> well, I'm going to, I'm going to wait until like version three and yeah. say like fuck humans up really bad. Yeah. And like people are like <laughs> bleeding in the brain and die from it. But I'll, my, I'll... my, my interesting question with that is Elon's pitch is, you know, we're going to increase the bandwidth. You know, you're going to have access faster, right. blah, blah, blah. That sounds great. But I wonder what would happen if you, you know, think about if you have a vehicle that you're driving, riding, whatever, and you're just redlining that thing all day, every day, mm-hmm. it's going to blow up. It's yeah. not meant for that. So can our human brain sustain that level of input output? Right. Or are we going to, you know, kind of implode, you know, d- dealing with that? I know, I mean, when you hear him explain it, it's wires in the brain and it's, it's reading and writing, you know, the, the signals of mm-hmm. the neurons that are firing. It's, obviously, it's, that's a very rudimentary view simplistic view of it but um in that sense it sounds like well you're just making things fire and blah 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 it sounds pretty simple um that it may not overload it but i feel like if you're able to do that that could cause a problem yeah it'll be interesting to see how that works i mean it's not it's it's pretty simplistic right now they're only you know they have some monkeys doing basic tasks and things like that i mean from a t- when, from- when you're like at a 10 like like when you hear him talk about it he goes like very soon like within 10 years we're not going to have to use language we won't have to talk mm-hmm. we'll just be telepathy basically yeah we'll be texting um, each other in our brains yeah and yeah. What, if your native language is chinese or yeah. mandarin you know an actual dialect and mine mine is english we can literally just go talk back and forth without right. using words and we'll understand each other perfectly and that's it that sounds fantastic, but at the same time, if you're operating at that level, like I said, not just beyond language and you're feeding things in from whatever you're doing, 
I, w- I wonder if the, the brain will be able to sustain that. Yeah, I don't. I, that's a great question. I don't have the answer to, but the and I'll, I'm, you know, full disclosure, I'm not smart enough or qualified enough to really even be talking about it. I'm just, <laughs> right. I'm just speculating as a as an interested consumer that you know. Yeah, I mean, I see the downfalls of like what could potentially happen with it and how scary that is, but I also from a positive angle, think maybe humankind can take a quantum leap forward in understanding the things that we don't understand. And maybe it could be bridging the gap to helping educate people on a level that could stem the tide on a lot of this like warring that, and that's negativity the way I view it. shittiness that's going on. And also, I mean, who doesn't want to be like Neo in fucking Matrix yeah. where he's like, they plug him <laughs> in and jack him with this file and he like wakes up and he's like, I know Kung Fu. Yeah, I, I want to. I'm that. really optimistic about it. I mean, if they can get to the level where it's they're really making change, I mean, if you can get to the level, where, like I said, you're like regulating dopamine and serotonin. And it, you know, if you're down to that level, mm-hmm. you could get rid of a lot of pharmaceuticals that cause right. other problems and regulate it properly based on what's actually happening in real time. Right. That would be amazing mm-hmm. for a lot of people. Yep. He's talking about curing a lot of diseases, you know, Alzheimer's, paralysis, a bunch of those things. Obviously, mm-hmm. and if you knew any of that, fantastic eyesight. Right. He even he even said, I don't know if you heard him say, you'll be able to see in whatever spectrum you want. If you want infrared, if you want night vision, you want whatever. Oh, I didn't hear Literally, that. he said, we'll have an app on your phone. You can hit night vision. You'll see in night vision. Oh, wow. He said, it's just a frequency change that's going on in the brain. He's like, no problem. <laughs> like, that's, I mean, a, that's insane to even talk about. I mean, uh, yeah. if you can give humans abilities like that eventually, I mean, that's going to be incredible but what i was going to say is the bigger thing if we can talk with basically telepathy and transverse languages and language no no longer matters where you know what it's like trying to talk to someone where the their native language isn't yours Mm -hmm. it's very difficult to communicate your body language and that's meaningful but it still only gets you so far Mm -hmm. to understand you know a complex nuanced conversation that's incredibly difficult or an emotional one with a Right. Um, a partner or with whoever, right. sometimes you're having an argument and they don't get what you're saying and you're like, I don't know, how, the, how else can I explain it? It's uh, This is right. what it is. And they don't get it. But my hope with this is if you can understand people's intent mm. more clearly, because even words, the English language, we only have so many words. Right. Sometimes words aren't enough or right. th- there can be a different intent behind the words and that's a bit of a puzzle to figure out. If you really know the person, it might be easier if you don't. It's going to be really difficult. Yeah, that's why I've gotten into a million fights on fucking my phone, <laughs> like texting people because people don't understand the context or the intention Absolutely. that I'm communicating. And like, yeah. I've had times where I'm like not mad at all and but I'm totally. just like making a statement or I'm asking a human to do something and they're like, well, what the fuck's your problem? And I'm like, nothing at all. Wait, what? what? Why are we mad? Why, why is this? Why are you angry right now? Yeah. Well, you said this, this, and this, and I'll like, I'll go back and reread it. And I'm like, oh yeah, like that could be interpreted mm-hmm. as aggressive. You know, that, that could have been interpreted as aggressive or a pissy statement. Sure. And I totally didn't mean it like that at all. And yeah. so then if like, we can solve that in real time yeah. with intent, mm-hmm. I think that would be a, a huge leap forward for right. humanity. Yeah. Really, you know, that would solve a lot of, I feel like communication issues that yeah. ultimately lead to people fighting and destruction and whatever else. Yeah. yeah. If you can solve that intent problem, that would be just incredible. Yeah. Not to mention, like I said, curing diseases, all these other things. I mean, right. if you can figure that out, man, that's going to be be wild. I'm glad there's another human in the world that I've met now yeah. that nerds out on this shit as much as I <laughs> oh, do. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm full on, full yeah. in. Yeah. I love shit like that. I like watching anytime Elon Musk is like doing anything. I love, like, I think he's amazingly brilliant. And like, I, I find it interesting the people that hate on him so hard. 
it's understand like the one thing like oh he hasn't delivered he didn't meet his timeline for a pro- okay whatever you're dealing with he's trying to do stuff that nobody's done it takes time give the guy a break i mean I, the fact that he's doing any one of the things that he's even doing is astronomical. Yeah, the people that criticize Elon Musk, I call cunts because they have no <laughs> fucking clue, A, how brilliant the guy is and how forward thinking is. But from a design perspective, like, and, you know, this is something that I get wrapped up with and with my, you know, with my own industry and people is like, people do not understand the nuances of the design process and making something, an idea from taking something in your mind that's an idea or a concept and then like, making it come to reality, like sketching it out and then like taking it from a sketch and sketching like 50 iterations of it to make sure you flushed it out enough and on paper, then putting it in a CAD model and then deciding what materials you want it made out of and what problem you're solving. Yeah, making stuff is, is incredibly difficult and yeah. the speed at which he's doing it mm-hmm. and the industries, which he's turning upside down. I mean, yeah. for one guy to be in all the things he's doing with the, you know, electric vehicles and he didn't just make an electric vehicle. He made the right. best, the safest, fastest, you know, right. most technolo- technologically advanced vehicles on the planet. Right. He just leapfrogged people that have been doing this for a hundred years. Right. Like that. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. And and then with space, he brought the ability to America back to get to the ISS that they haven't had for decades. Right. That we had to rely on the Russians to get us there. Correct. Now he's doing it. It's reusable. It's cheaper. He's shooting stuff up there all the time. Right. <laughs> uh, hello. He's came up like just the fact that you can launch rockets and now they will come back and land oh man the first video of those two boosters coming back and, and landing, landing it's like i was like we're in the future yeah <laughs> i was like welcome to the future here we are yeah and it was amazing like watching what he's doing yeah, yeah. so I, and i just i just got a tesla last week finally i've been wanting one for a long time obviously uh, but the you know i was telling my wife i haven't enjoyed a product that much since maybe an iPhone or a MacBook or something where you could tell that someone put a lot of care into what they did. Everything has an intent and a purpose. And I know those people that hate Apple and whatever, that's fine. But I mean, I love Apple, but sometimes I get fed up with Johnny Ives because he's like, (laughs) once again, we've innovated and broke the mold with, you know, and then he's like, we've changed the curvature of the glass exactly 6.7 millimeters. So then it, 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 yes, some of it's irrelevant. Yeah. You're going, okay, that's great. But but anyways, the form factor that they have, you can tell that they've put a great deal of care right. into it. Things are there for a purpose. They've made the right. inside of it beautiful. Why? Because they care. Right. It's not just like, well, no, people aren't going to see that. So who gives yeah. a shit? That, that shows that their character, their right. heart is in it. They actually want to make something that's yeah. better than something else yeah. that you're going to like. And there's appreciation in it. They, they, they just care. You can tell. Yeah, and no. with Tesla, it was like... Same they, thing. They created a user experience. Mm-hmm. It's so fantastic. I mean, driving that car, it, you almost, you can't help but kind of giggle to yourself. It's just hilarious because it yeah. just goes kind of goes whoosh and it just effortlessly goes as fast as you want. I mean, yeah. it's insane. Um, yeah, and I told my wife I, I hadn't enjoyed a product that much in a long time. Yeah, you get products all the time and it's like, use it and you're like, God, this thing's a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's, it just is what it is. And, you know, people want to make things cheap and bump them out and, mm-hmm. you know, just do that. And I, I never had that philosophy. You know, I with Apple kind of, you know, I learned a lot from them just looking at their design and their philosophy and all that. It's like, hey, no, you need to care. You need to care on a level that nobody else cares. Right. You yeah, know? you have to be obsessed about what you're doing with that product or that, your brand or what, you know, what whatever you're producing, you need to be obsessed about it. But mm-hmm. the, yeah, I'm just like, hey, Johnny, can you just like, it's cool that you made the glass more 
Kirby in yeah. my hand, but could you just make Siri work? That'd be so fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> or like maybe if I could just like, here's a brilliant idea. If I could just choose what AI I want to use and put it in my phone, like, yeah. <laughs> I would love to be able to. Yeah. Take... Well, unfortunately they're also a business. They want to lock you in their ecosystem. Yeah. And, you know, that's, there's that aspect. Of yeah. It as well. Fucking your customers with proprietary shit. That's why I'm not doing that. That's why I like all my heads and tail caps are backwards compatible with like all the Surefire and Mod Light stuff. Yeah. Cause like I had a situation in Iraq where I had a uh, SEAL team attached to me for a brief amount of time. And we had some indirect fire come in, some mortars came in, exploded. Everybody took, got down, took cover. Well, a piece of shrapnel, uh, you know, the SEAL got down behind his Humvee and this piece of shrapnel came by and like cut the head off of his weapon light. He had a Surefire scout light on his gun mm-hmm. and it like chopped the head. The piece of shrapnel came by and chopped the head in half. And so luckily I had at the time really close relationship with Surefire and was doing some consulting with them and I had extra parts and pieces in my bag and I was able to, you know, give him another scout head that I had in my backpack Mm -hmm. that I brought as an extra because I knew shit like that was going to happen. And so he was able to screw, you know, another head back on his gun that I gave him and like get back. He was now fully mission capable again, but I have never forgotten that. And I've always thought to myself when I was designing my stuff, like what if there's a guy out there that like doesn't have my proprietary shit, but has access to something in his supply chain or that another buddy has, but he's out of the fight because his shit won't screw on to my, to yeah. my shit. So and I'm you're like, literally dealing with life and death situations. Life it's like we can't yeah. be down tools or down resources of right. what we have. It's like you need to be everything you need at all times, yeah. you right. know, to give you the best chance. Right. So then I've always used like Microsoft and Apple as that proprietary example of like how you get caught in these like product verticals, these silos, these companies will, keep mm-hmm. you in with the you know proprietary shit. And so I can't afford to do that with my guys because as you just mentioned like that's life and death could be on the line. So like I'm I make yeah. my stuff as backwards compatible with my competitor stuff as possible so that in the event that that ever happens in the future to somebody else, you know, they'll be able to do the same thing that I was able to do in that moment luckily because he was, you know, he wasn't using a streamlight or an insight. He had a surefire light on his gun and so I was able to put a surefire head back on his gun, but I was like cool, I want people if that happens to them to be able to, when they're using my, any of my componentry can use another company's componentry to, Absolutely. to you know, be mission capable. So, yeah. So, okay. So let's dive into how you got into design because. Yeah. I forgot to touch on that. Yeah. So the, in 2009, after I stopped racing, when the recession hit, yeah. some of the money dried up and it was a little bit more difficult to get rides right. and get things like that. And some friends of ours and previous business partners of my dad, they live in California, had kind of a, a business plan drawn up. His two, his twin boys were getting older. They were a, a year younger than me at the time. They were only 19. And uh, they wanted to start something, but they just weren't old enough yet. They weren't kind of ready. So we had this business plan for this company. And we looked at that. And after I quit racing, we're like, well, maybe there's, we can slide into this because we'll do it in Canada. You do it in the US and we'll have a partnership and blah, blah, blah. So we ended up doing that. And the engineer that did some of those early products for that company that we still have going today, and we're still partners and all that, he kind of helped me out a little bit because I was always into, you know, I was in school. I took metalwork and wood shop and, you know, all, I, I had made stuff from a really young age. I was making parts for my bike and right. different stuff. But, you know, you're working with hacksaws and drills and you know, just right. shops, hacky stuff. And even when I was in high school, our, I remember our school got a mill, a brand new, gorgeous knee mill, giant, mm. you know, Fantau was like kid in a candy store. I couldn't wait to get back there and right. go mess with that thing. And we had lathes and all kinds of stuff. So the... Um, that was fantastic. And it, it was funny because I, I was super into that. So I'd done a ton of research. I had 
you know, machining books and I had my own end mills and my, <laughs> all my own stuff. I'd like bring them from home and use them because you can't trust any of those high school kids. They were, they were running tools into parts and snapping oh, yeah. them off and it was just a disaster. So right. I'm like, I'm going to get my own. I'm just going to bring those in when I need them. Correct. So I was in, in a way teaching the teacher like how to use the machine. He's like, do you know what you're doing over here? And I'm like changing tools and doing all kinds yeah. of stuff. Yeah, I got it. Get it. Yeah, it's good. all good. He's like, well, just take it slow at first. I'm like, speeds and feeds. I get it. I got yeah. it. I'm, I'm got good. It. I'm good. I know. Yeah. I'm cutting aluminum. I'm doing this. I, I know what's going on. It's all good. So I messed around on that a lot in high school, and that was kind of leveled up a bit. And then, like I said, when we had this company, he gave me a a, a pirated copy of SolidWorks. Mm. <laughs> That's kind of how I started. Nice. And he showed me kind of the basics. Um, I already kind of knew the gist. Obviously, you're working on Axis and blah, blah, blah. But so I started playing around that and just designing different things and right. started doing a few things for um, that first company that we had. And we were just designing some different things that were relatively easy design projects. They weren't overly complicated right. to do, but that helped get me some of the skills going while I, I basically learned by just doing it. Mm-hmm. I just kept, you know, I'm going to design all these different things. And as you do them, you run into little problems or how do I do this? How do I do that? And, you know, you can Google some stuff and look at videos. I mean, we live in an age where if you're motivated, you can learn just about anything. Right. You know, so that was really helpful. And at the same time, I had to work on graphics and different things. So I had to tap into some of my other friends that were graphic designers and all that. And I'm like, okay, how do I, I got to copy Illustrator. How, how do I do this? How do I make the graphics? How do I do this? How do I print them? How do I, whatever it is. So from some of them, I learned how to do that. So I could do the product. I could do the graphics. I could make logos. I could print stickers. I could do... You know, between those two, between SolidWorks and Illustrator, you can get a lot done, right. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so that was that was really cool. And I was kind of teaching myself both of those at the same time um, as I needed to do things. And that's I just kind of kept plugging away. And the, the neck brace project, I started basically right away. That was one of my first maybe five projects that I started in SolidWorks. That was a daunting one. <laughs> that yeah. was, you know, you're you're jumping in the middle of the ocean, Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. with no life vest. That, right, that's right. basically how that goes in that world. We're dealing with complex curves that has to fit the body. There has to be different sizes. There's mechanical parts that fold. There's uh, latch mechanisms that have to function. You know, there's a lot of things going on. Right. There's the mating of padding. There's co-molding. There's <laughs> different materials, tolerances, shrinkage, all, all these things, right? So that was uh, a daunting one, but it, it took about three years to really develop it to a point where it was, you know, consumer ready. Um and uh, yeah, I mean that's kind of where it started. Yeah, I've had some of my products on the on the drawing board for three, four years now. I mean this light this light project, I think has been on the drawing board for four years. And mm-hmm. you know, part of the reason it took so long is because I'm super detail oriented and I want to make sure that I put out the best product possible. Because I've watched like as a consultant for larger companies, I've watched them over and over again put out product that I did not feel was ready. And then had either a higher than average return rate or like had some problem where then they had to go back in and do like an inline design change. And like the hard part with startups, I find is you're, you're timing product releases with revenue that you need Mm -hmm. instead of releasing products when they're ready. You know, people like the companies like Apple and these people that have billions of dollars, like they could not release something for 10 years. It wouldn't really make a difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously they wouldn't do that, but they could. Right. Where if you have a small business and you're a startup, if you don't release something, you don't have any income. Right. <laughs> it, the whole thing rides on that. So you, you're creating these artificial time windows where you have to release things. Yeah. And yes, like you said, so many people, they end up rushing to release things because they have to, mm-hmm. for better or for worse. Right. I would say 99% of the time, it's to your detriment to be doing that. So because you the, really haven't fleshed it out enough or it's not quite ready right. or there's you know some things you may have overlooked, you know, this mechanism, oh, it, it's a little squeaker. It doesn't quite work properly. Mm-hmm. Eh, whatever. Well, you know, I, I hate doing that. We, mm-hmm. We've done it. 
the odd time. There's no drastic failure. Any, it's really minor stuff. But for me, as a perfectionist and a designer, I go that I can make that better. Right. It's not ready. It's not fully baked yet. Yeah. Correct. But yeah, if you can get to a point where you're releasing things based on, I'm releasing it because it's ready. That's mm-hmm. utopia. Yeah. 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 So I have two. I have two terms that I that I like to use. One is design fucking and the other one is engineer fucking and design fucking is like where you just like keep sketching something over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And you just like, don't ever get it to that next phase of prototype. Cause you're never satisfied with it. And there's been times where I've been like, okay, you're doing your design fucking right now. Like take that last sketch that you did and let's go like get this 3d modeled now. And then engineer fucking is where, and I chronically run into, I've made a career out of you know, basically wrangling engineers who, they're brilliant, amazingly brilliant. So much more smart than I am in a lot of regards with understanding mechanics and being able to like speed through. Got this engineer that he's an amazing dude and he works with me now and he he can speed through CAD like no one I've ever seen before, like SolidWorks. He can like, he can model something up. Like I can send him just a little napkin sketch and he'll model something up in like three, yeah. three hours. Yeah. And it's got complex like geometry in it. And I'm like, whoa. And so, you know, engineers are brilliant, but sometimes they get way down in the, like I've had to stop them before my two engineers that I work with regularly because they'll want to do like metal viscosity equations and like they'll want to like get so far down. And, And I understand that they're trying to do the best job possible, but it gets to the point where like you're trying to mitigate every single potential failure to so much to a point where you are now holding up the project. Yeah, there's, so. there's a time when, I mean, you just got to get prototypes, let people yeah. use them. Yep. You, you, a lot of that stuff you can figure out in the field. There's yeah. a lot of, you know, yeah. very good applications for failure analysis right. and all of these tools. But yeah, I, f- I found the same thing. And one of, one of the things that, you know, I'm a, I would classify, classify myself as a bit of a lazy person. I'm very productive. I have a company mm-hmm. and design. I'm the, sure. you know, not in that sense that I just don't do anything, but I'm lazy in the fact that one of my biggest pet peeves is inefficiency. Mm. I always want to be hyper efficient. Right. And the way that ties into lazy is one of the, Bill Gates's famous quotes is if I want some, if I need something really hard done, I find a lazy person to do it because they're going to find the fastest way. Mm. So I care very deeply about the product. I want perfectionist. Right. I want to do a good job, but I also want to be efficient. Right. So it's funny that those kind of butt heads a little bit, but they can, they can help each other as well. If it, if you care enough, right. you know, you, you don't want to just breeze through and overlook things and be lazy in that sense. You want to be lazy and saying, Hey, traditionally this is done in 10 steps. How do I do it in three? Yes. While maintaining quality and all these other things that you, and still getting to the end result. Right. And not letting your product get stuck at a stage gate because you need to over-engineer the shit out of it to a point where yes. like, Yes, efficiency is definitely a thing, but it's also like don't let your products get stuck at any stage gate because if they do, you can spend a ridiculous amount of time. You know, you can set up a tent and camp out on some of these stage gates for design where I'm like, nope, it's time to go to the next phase. And inherently, there's problems at every stage that will not unearth themselves until they will not reveal, like you'll you'll find product problems that will not reveal themselves until you get to that particular point where you've taken the model from like a CAD you know, cause I'm like, stop CAD fucking that. Cause they're like looking for interferences, you know, they'll build, they'll build the model out. They'll build this mm-hmm. beautiful model. And then they'll be doing like the mechanical interfaces in the model, in mm-hmm. the simulation. Yeah. And they'll just do that to death to dial in all the interferences. And then it gets to the point where they're still doing that. And they're like, I don't know about this. And I don't know about that. And I'm like, it's time to put the motherfucker on the 3d printer and get a physical yeah. model. And like, let's find out for real in the actual physical, if we have any interferences. And sometimes 
the model is clean. It's super clean. But then we go and we start, we, we do a 3d print and we start throwing it on and you find other things that we find other interferences that you, that were completely impossible to see in the CAD model. And so then that's when you're like, oh shit. And you got to go back in the CAD model and adjust that. Having a printer in my office really changed, changed the game. game You can iterate immediately. You're not relying on anyone. And I almost work in a different way where I don't even want to talk about failure analysis or testing until I get it to a point where I'm happy with it. Right. And it functions as I intend for my own use yep. while I'm doing it. So I, I usually work on that way where I'll come up with something, I'll print 10 different iterations of it and right. make sure it works and make sure the fit is right and do all that with real parts and make adjustments and do that. And then I'll, I'll test it myself if it's something I can wear or do whatever, make sure I'm happy with it and it functions as I intend. And that's like, okay, now let's do all the failure analysis and lab testing and all this different stuff and make sure that it's, that it's good. And then we'll go back and make little changes, but right. you know, to to get to that stage that early, a failure analysis before you've even printed one or tried it, it's like I don't even know if the, the I got to get it out there and try it. Correct. You know, let's do that first because it's so you can always test things, you can right. always do failure analysis, you can always do lab testing if that's what you need for the product. You can always do that stuff; it's always an option. Mm-hmm. But to do that early, you're adding so much complication and cost, and like you said, you're just you're almost twiddling thumbs. Like you're kind of going through these motions of, you don't even know what your end result's going to be yet. Right. You're trying to figure out, oh, this thread interfaces this. Who cares right now? Right. It's not even that. Can it just bolter on? Let's give it a try. You know, so that's where the, that lazy part comes in. It's yeah. not that I don't want to do the steps or, or um, do the due diligence or do what's needed to make, you know, in my case, the product safe for the consumer. Of course, we're going to do all of that. I don't have to do that now and at every step. It's just not, you know, that thread interface or that bolt. I might completely change that whole thing right. in the final thing if it doesn't work as I intend. So why am I going to perfect it now? I mean, yeah, my you locking... Know, I me- do the perfection step last. Yeah, the, the locking mechanism on my light, like I... That's been the big hang up is like trying to get that thing to lock up because there was like material issues. Like we, we... I printed it a few times. I mean, more than a few times. I printed it a yeah. shit ton. Uh, in different forms and varieties. And it was like, you know, it was, it was functioning how I thought it should function. And then the second we were like cut aluminum. Yeah. And then you make and, it out of metal that and, and Mars steel. and, and burrs and all. Right. Yeah. And then we were shearing because the lock bars are made out of, you know, steel, tool steel and mm-hmm. the, you know, the mounts aluminum. Yeah. And so when we went to do our, you know, durability testing to make sure that it wasn't going to like, you know, fall off the fucking mount, we were shearing the fucking because mm-hmm. of the metal and yep. then because of the size and the geometry at which I designed the lock bars, you know, they weren't, there wasn't enough surface area to get enough uh, yeah. bite or tension. Um, the spring that I initially specced was too, what didn't have enough, you know, push to bite. Sure. Uh, I mean, there was a variety of problems that we had to go through these problem sets and it took putting it in that physical form with that specific material to get it to a place where it finally started functioning. It, you know, we started going through these iterations and like thickening up tolerances and making things thicker and fatter and giving things more surface area and different geometry. And we went through, I think like seven or eight more iterations on not only the lock bars, but the bot, the, the, the mounting dovetail and the, and the body, the, the channel and the body where, I mean, there's so many things that we had to go back in and like remodel and then re and that's funny because re machine to get it to do what we wanted it to do and that's funny because if you had you know unless you had a material scientist on hand or someone that's like hey you might have a problem with that aluminum interfacing with that steel or whatever no amount of failure analysis would have caught that you would have been like the mechanism functions properly in theory yeah okay great awesome 
but you still would have the same problem. Right. So that's where that laziness, it doesn't affect the product and it's not about cutting corners. It's about getting to that end result sooner. And if you print and you're dealing with a physical thing, you found that out. You don't have to be a material scientist to find that out. Mm. It's just trial and error. Yeah. That's how virtually everything is built. Yes, you can build in some of those things and you can avoid a few problems. And if you have a material scientist, it'll help you with the flow of an injection molded part or, right. you know, these little nuances are what's necessary, but ultimately, you know, mechanically or whatever, with trial and error, if you just get to it, you can solve those problems yeah, extremely fast, especially yep. if you know what you're looking for and yep. the result, you know, the application, like with you with guns, you know what you need, right? It's no, there's no question, you know, when it's right, you'll know it. Yeah, and we had this. We had a great saying at uh, design school, and I can't remember who said it, but my teachers used to say it all the time: "Fail faster, succeed sooner." Exactly. Yeah, G- iterate. Go yeah. through iterations. Iterations yep. in sketches. Iterations in your CAD. Iterations in your 3D prints, and iterations in your actual first stage prototypes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and then I'm, if you spent hours doing failure analysis, perfecting every little aspect of that, and need to print it, and it still doesn't work, you've wasted. All of that time, right. all of that resource, all of that capital mm-hmm. to get, yeah, it's just, a, I've, I've never found that to be helpful, at least for my little niche of what I, right. and what I do. I'm sure there's industries where, hey, if you're going to design a car and you do it, yeah, there's a lot of things that are super necessary. I'm not, you, you right. know, not a proponent of, you know, analysis or any of those right. things. There's a lot of, or something medical or something, right? yeah, Neuralink, for example, yeah. you can't just start firing stuff into brains. No. You, you know, there, right. There's applications for this where it, right. it's not applicable, but for us making things out of metal and plastic and mechanical systems, yeah. no problem. Right. It's not going to hurt anybody to iterate it and figure it out and verify it you know, before you launch it to yeah. consumers. So how did you, how'd you come up with your, your design? What, and go, go over the product for me real quick. The, yeah, so the, the, uh, we make neck braces that help prevent cervical spine injuries. So they work in conjunction with a full-face helmet. So any full-faced helmet sport, um, that isn't seated and belted. So we don't work for like car applications right. or, you know, NASCAR, the, like the right. Hans device is the predominant device in those things, but they work different. It's more of a whiplash device. You're kind of connected to it. And when you're seated and belted, your head can only move so much, you know, it's mostly just forward, right. you know, hyperflexion injuries. Um, so th- that's a singular thing. But for us, we're on a motorcycle or on a mountain bike or an ATV or a snowmobile, any of those things, but you can be disconnected from the bike. You can crash in every direction. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many more variables than a seated application. Yeah, getting thrown off and ragdolled across the whatever. Yeah, and yeah. Mo- most of the time you're dealing with, you know, over the handlebars landing on the head. That's, you know, other than dip overs and corners right. or little things. Um, those are the real bad ones because most of the time you're going and you're flying. And the arc at which your body goes off of the bike and goes into the earth is almost always 90 degrees. Oh, wow. So you're dealing with, you know, direct impacts or, and if you have a, a jump face or something in front of you, it's, it's really nasty stuff, you know, just crushes your body and the whole weight of your body comes behind you and forces it into the ground. It's really nasty stuff. So, um, so yeah, so the neck brace helps prevent cervical spine injuries. It does that by interfacing with the full face helmet and acting essentially as suspension for your neck in a sense. It's taking forces that would have gone into your neck and dispersing them around the body and doing a better job of that. What, we have what, we have actual like suspension built into the front of it on the chest oh, supports. Okay, cool. um, the parts are flexible, so they actually catch the helmet and control the deformation of it, um, which helps absorb the energy. You know, some of our competitors that are out there, they're they're very rigid. Right. And the problem that we found in that with our lab testing was, the helmet would hit it, and you'd have this this abrupt spike in the force measurement. 
So your helmet would interface and you'd, you'd see the spike. You can see it in graphs. Right. And I didn't like that because most of what I know from injury, a lot of injury happens from sudden stops. Right. Yeah, you can have violent get-offs and all of that, but the exact moment the injury happens is, you know, you land, you put your arm out, break your arm. You, you know, it's those millisecond impacts of whatever the weakest point in, of what you're right. doing. So I didn't like the sudden stop approach. I didn't think that made a lot of sense because we know that can cause injury. So I'm like, instead of having the sudden stop and working on basically a two-tiered system where helmet interfaces, force goes through the device into the body, you know, that's a rigid system. Right. For mine, I work in a three-tier system. Helmet interfaces, product helps disperse the energy, then the rest of it goes in your body. Okay. So when you actually see some of our testing from the product, the helmet will hit it and you see a shock wave go through the entire product and directly away from the impact site. What oh, that wow. is, is a giant amount of force leaving and going away from the site of injury. Um, or I should say site of impact, not necessarily injury, depending on what happens. Um, but, but the point of impact, that energy goes away and then the rest of it goes in your body. So we're trying to save your neck and we're trying to not do that by creating any potential for a secondary injury to wherever the product sits, right. on your chest, wherever. Yeah. I'm going to have to get one of these for my son because he loves motorcycles and he loves, I don't think he has one yet, but his, I don't think his mom will let him have a motorcycle <laughs> yet. But his, uh, his, uh, he's loves downhill mountain biking. Mm -hmm. Love, 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 loves his mountain bike. So yeah, I'm going to have to get him, yeah, it's get perfect. him, get him yeah, in one of these pieces of gear. So how did you, guys. how did you even decide that you were going to make this as a product to start out with? So like, there were other ones on the market. When I was towards the end of my racing career, I wore two of the different competitors that existed and then through my dad's connections, we were very well connected in the industry because he was in it for so many years. Right. So we knew a lot of people and just being in the sport, you, you know, people right. at a high level. So, um, there was two on the market. I had worn both of them. They both had their downfalls. They were, like I said, they were very rigid. So they're hard to ride in. One of them was developed by, a um, a guy who went to medical school, but he was more of a road bike, uh, like crotch rocket kind yeah. of enthusiast yeah. guy. So he didn't really come from motocross in those you don't, sort of move around on the bike quite as much. It's a bit different. You're always right. kind of in the same position. With us, we're moving around a lot. We're sitting, we're standing, we're, you know, all over the place, doing jumps, going in corners. And it just wasn't that great of an experience as a rider. It was hard to do the things we needed to do, you know, as a professional, knowing how to ride. So, but I believed in the technology. I believed in what they did and, you know, their message was pretty good. And, you know, it kind of took the sport by storm. You know, they, they were very highly adopted. Then I wore the, the other competitor, slightly better, you know, a little bit of an improvement over what they had. And then this third one came from a company that I got to try before it was actually released to the public because I said we were friends from industry. Right. And they're like, hey, give this a try. Tell us what you think. So I tried that and they had a few okay ideas, but really poor execution. Hmm. It It was... It was not well done. It, it did not fit well. It was very difficult to adjust. But they attempted sort of to have it sit around your spine and sternum because the, the first other braces, they sat on your spine and sternum, which I'm like, that's not a great place to transfer energy. Yeah. So I don't understand your the theory there, but okay. <laughs> they're, they're, what their thing was, was we have crumble zones like a car. These parts break away under enough force. Mm. Okay, but... That that's easily reproducible in a lab. We you know we have this perfect little fulcrum with this perfect impact, and it breaks off all nice. But in reality, you know, if you have an impact a different way, if you have something that breaks off, like I said, that you know has a fulcrum, and that's the point, it has to rotate and break off. But if you have an impact and you hit that vertically, it's like a knife. 
Right. It, it ain't. It's not going to break. No. Because it doesn't have the force in the, in the correct direction. So there was instances like that that I just didn't even want the potential for that. I didn't think that was a great approach. I didn't think that having it break was a great approach because there's a lot of times in our sport we crash. It's really violent and we get back up and we keep going. Yeah. But if the product breaks, now what am I dealing with? Right. You know, you don't want something that's going to prevent you to, from continuing. Right. So that was a problem. That's part of the flexibility approach that I took. So basically, I looked at all these other products and said, what are they good at? What are they bad at? How can I fix it? That's really where it started. And at first, it really wasn't serious because I hadn't, at that time, I hadn't brought a product to market. I'd always wanted to because right. of my interest in building things. And I knew how to build things by my hand, by hands. And I knew, you know, kind of how to do that. I just didn't have the right tools at the time, you hmm. know, to manufacture. But we had a lot of experience in business. We knew contacts in Asia to manufacture things. You know, I had resources I could tap into that I could figure all that out. And that's basically what I did and how I started, like I described earlier. Um, so after looking at these competitors and saying, okay, I like this, I like this, I like this. Here's a few other ideas I have. I don't know right this second how to implement them, but here's some, you know, ideas. And then I just kind of went to work and just kept playing around with it. I mean, I was, I was super dedicated. I, mean, I still am, but back then, I mean, I was, I was 21 years old. I would stay up till two in the morning working on this, like in SolidWorks and CAD doing it. I wasn't partying or going out or doing like that. That's what I was doing right the whole time while my friends were out doing all their other crap. So I, you know, I just put my head down and just kept and just went till I figured it out essentially. Nice. Um, and tapped into whoever I needed to tap into for resources or knowledge, or if I got stuck somewhere, I'd be like, you know, go find who the person is that I had, mm -hmm. who was the best source for that. And just hammered away at it. Yeah, entrepreneurial problem solving. Yeah. 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 But like I said, just jump in, do it, figure it out, get models printed, start doing it. I made one of the first ones out of um, uh, just some sheet metal, like some uh, 116th aluminum sheet, I, just to get the curvature around the body because I needed something physical because right. I was drawing the model and I'm like, well, I have measurements, but I need something to like, so yeah. I just I just built something myself with yeah. my hands and a, and a bandsaw. Nice. <laughs> you know, it didn't have to find, it didn't matter with the function. I was just testing curvature and doing different things. But, you know, having something to play with made a big difference. And it wasn't near a level to 3D print it and try it. So I didn't even bother with right. that at the time. But, um, yeah, just kept iterating and, and figuring it out. No, I mean, that's what that's what it's all about, man. Entrepreneurial design is all about that life. Like, figure, consistently problem solving little things that pop up. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes big things that pop up every day. And, like, just keep moving the ball down the field. Like, so many times, I mean... Yeah, I mean, progress. You just yeah. keep making progress, whether it's yep. micro or macro, whatever. Just keep making progress. Yeah. I mean, even if even if you don't feel like you made progress, because I've had days where I've been like, Jesus, did I, did I even do anything today? Like, what the fuck? Where did my day go? And like, sometimes you go backwards. Yeah. You go too far, and you yep. you know you're, you're trying so hard that it ends up getting worse, and you're like, okay, all right, we got to dial it. Let's go yep. back and try another path. Yeah. But the, the the key is to not quit. Just to keep moving forward. Because I have people that yeah. call me all the time, and they're like, I have this idea. I want to do this thing. Like, how do I do it? Push the Google um, button. Push yeah, the Google for button. sure. Yeah. And uh, we were lucky enough to have a, a test lab that we worked with, and they had been involved with some lawsuits for one of these first companies. Yeah. So they saw what was working, what wasn't working. It was like injury lawsuits. People yeah. got hurt, and they sued them like everybody does. Mm -hmm. And um, But these people at the lab were actually expert witnesses on behalf of the company saying, no, it did what it intended. They're just this happened or that happened. There's all kinds of nuance to it. Um, there was one case where a guy crashed and his um his head actually twisted like Ooh. this 
to the point, I think, I think the kid actually died, but it did that and it, it um, caused a problem with his brainstem and, and he died. But the helmet nor the neck brace nor anything, we can't protect against that. There's right. no mechanism that, that we can do that. So all they knew was a crash that happened in the flash. The kid died and now they want to blame everybody. Right. And, uh, you know, I understand that would be terrible. I wouldn't wish that on anybody, of course. But it's not always the products at fault. There's certain things we can't do. Like I said, it's a dangerous sport. Yeah. And, you know what? We're trying, but, yeah. you know, there's only so many things we can do while you still have a range of motion and you can see and ride safely because yeah. that, that has to happen too. Um, and this test lab, so they, they helped us out. We developed a chest suspension system with them that would catch the helmet and then control the motion of it to reduce the force. And what what you basically want to do is you don't want any spikes. You want to add time to those impacts. Yeah. The more time that you add and the more you spread the force out, the more chance you have of survival, where if you cram all that into a little spike, you can have a real problem. Yeah. So it was all about, you know, trying to fix those moments. Nice. Nice. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. Well, uh, dude, thank you so much for coming down here. And I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think this is probably going to be one of my better podcasts. I love nerding out with fellow designers and, and, and especially talking to people about their entrepreneurial journey and how they got from point A to point B. Cause it's something that like super fascinates me and, you know, I get a ton of people asking questions, so I, I love it. Sure. Where, where, where can people find you? Yeah, so uh, atlasbrace.com. That's where you can see all our neck braces and all of that. It's atlasbrace on Instagram, Facebook, all the, all that stuff. Um, I don't do a whole lot personally on those platforms, so you're not going to get too much interesting stuff there. But um, yeah, check out the company platforms. That's really the, the best place. Awesome. Well, when we uh, get you guys, we'll get you guys back down here and we'll do another one because I'd love to like continue to deep dive into design with you. So Awesome. Thanks for coming down, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much.